A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from The Spectator and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, Jenny McCartney argues that tomorrow belongs to Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. What could this mean for reunification? Then, Dan Hitchens asks why Oxford killed a much-loved Catholic college. And finally, Gus Carter reads his notes on the tabletop game Warhammer. Up first, Jenny McCartney. Where can Ulster unionism go now? If it were a person, it would be someone in the grip of a long depression, whose occasional bursts of anger mask the fact that they so often feel despondent and betrayed. The widespread reaction to the latest Northern Ireland census, in which Catholics narrowly outnumber Protestants for the first time, is unlikely to give it a reason to be cheerful. A jubilant Michelle O'Neill, the Sinn Féin vice-leader, was quick to claim that historic change is happening across this island, while other party members called for a referendum on unity. The rallying cry of Sinn Féin has long been Chaka Arla, which translates as Our Day Will Come. In the zero-sum game of Northern Irish politics, to unionist ears, it also translates as Your Day Is Over. As with most things in Northern Ireland, of course, the census results are more complex than they seem. The fact that 45.7% identify as Catholic or from a Catholic background, next to 43.5% from Protestant and other Christian backgrounds, doesn't directly correlate to a majority for a united Ireland. The number of non-believers is growing, recalling that old joke, are you a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist? Nor do all Catholics necessarily want a united Ireland, particularly one in which a visit to the GP can cost €60. National identities are becoming blurrier too, with people variously identifying as British, Irish, Northern Irish or bespoke combinations of the above. For a sizeable number, their border preferences are anyone's guess. Nonetheless, there is a prevailing sense that with a fragmented unionism in the North and rising fury at the establishment in the South, Tomorrow belongs to Sinn Féin. In the last Assembly elections, it was returned as the largest party for the first time, meaning that O'Neill, its northern leader, is now designated First Minister of Northern Ireland, with the Democratic Unionist Party's Geoffrey Donaldson as Deputy First Minister. The Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly is also a Sinn Féin politician, Alex Maskey, as is the Lord Mayor of Belfast, Tina Black. This was the setup which greeted the new King Charles III on his flying visit to Northern Ireland in the aftermath of Queen Elizabeth II's death. And even a royal visit held few of the usual consolations for unionism. O'Neill and Maskey met the King with notable graciousness, expressing gratitude for the late Queen's peace building in Northern Ireland. For those of us who still remember those terse paragraphs in Anfoblacht in the 1980s, reporting icily on the doings of Elizabeth Windsor. It was quite a vibe shift, as young people say. 
but it was also a sign of Sinn Féin confidently working the levers of Northern Ireland. No longer are we the disgruntled rebels sniping at authority, it said. We are the authority, and we're fully capable of being the authority in Dublin as well. Equally remarkable was King Charles's response. Approaching them with the royal charm on full beam, like the headlights on an Aston Martin, he thanked O'Neill for speaking so kindly about his mother, before publicly verifying what he already knew. You are now the biggest party, are you? We are indeed, confirmed O'Neill. Don't be telling Geoffrey that now, added Maskey jovially, with an earshot of Donaldson, who was standing stiffly in line. Everyone laughed except the DUP leader. All this skill and ingenuity, said Charles admiringly of Sinn Féin. Then he turned to Donaldson, the headlights dimming. I have seen you occasionally, he said, with studied uncertainty, in the past. It's a common quirk of the human psyche, and perhaps particularly of the English upper-class one, that it is more exciting to make friendly conversation with people who not so long ago wanted to kill you, than with those who have always revered you, but with whom you may feel little in common. It may also have been a sign that Charles disapproves of the DUP's current obstruction of the power-sharing assembly in protest at the Northern Ireland Protocol, although Sinn Féin also boycotted the devolved government for three years, from 2017 to 2020. But the Queen would not have made her preferences so plain, and Ulster Unionists, perhaps her biggest fans anywhere in the UK, find themselves genuinely bereft by her loss. She was a living link to the last time that London seemed to appreciate them, during the shared sacrifices of the Second World War. Since then, the British government has proved, at best, an unreliable ally. The first great modern blow to the Unionist psyche was struck in 1985 with the Anglo-Irish Agreement, which granted the Irish government a consultative role in Northern Ireland's affairs. The full weight of Unionist fury fell on the unfortunate Northern Ireland Secretary Tom Keane, whose name was frequently expelled from the Reverend Ian Paisley's capacious lungs with an added flourish of derision. Tom Cat King. More than a 100,000 Unionists of all shades protested publicly against the agreement, to no avail. The agreement was followed by the 1993 Downing Street Declaration, which openly stated that the British government had no selfish, strategic or economic interest in Northern Ireland. In Unionist eyes, the Northern Ireland Protocol has shifted the grounds of the relationship once more, this time from tacit indifference to open humiliation. In Boris Johnson's rush to get Brexit done, he signed up to this act of economic amputation which placed a hitherto unthinkable customs border in the Irish Sea. The DUP's boycott of the devolved assembly in response means that it has been suspended since February with no imminent prospect of return. The grim outcome is that Northern Ireland is now devoid of an executive drifting into an autumn and winter defined by an escalating cost-of-living crisis in step with a worsening health service exacerbated by a shrinking number of GPs. Meanwhile, the protocol is subject to an ongoing legal wrangle between the British government and the EU. Political stagnation is allied to cultural poison. 
Both the orange and green manifestations of sectarianism have proved as stubborn as Japanese knotweed. Most people are rightly repelled by the orange variety, with its murderous sectarian slogans and celebration of loyalist killers. But it is mainly confined to those areas of Northern Ireland most influenced by the still active loyalist paramilitaries. The green strain is spreading into more territory, however, and becoming respectable among middle-class nationalist youth across Ireland. The slogan of Up the Ra is often chanted at concerts and sporting events, mainly by young people who never experienced the troubles. The electorally buoyant Sinn Féin regularly commemorates dead IRA volunteers in proudly romantic terms, regardless of what human destruction they unleashed. Meanwhile, increasing numbers of Northern Irish nationalists also seem ready to grant the IRA campaign a legitimacy in retrospect, which they denied it at the time. In a recent Lucid Talk poll, nearly 7 out of 10 nationalist voters agreed with O'Neill's statement that there was no alternative to the IRA's campaign of violence. Yet during the Troubles, the majority of nationalists voted for the peaceable Social Democratic and Labour Party, whose leader John Hume wrote in 1989 that there is not a single injustice in Northern Ireland today that justifies the taking of a single human life, and that if I were to lead a civil rights campaign today, the main target would be the IRA. Those of us who hoped for a future Ireland in which mutually inflicted pain could be more honestly acknowledged on all sides now see that prospect slipping further away. It's clear that if unionist politicians wish to convince a broader electorate of the benefits of the union, they will have to make a more positive secular case for it. The DUP's current woes have partly resulted from its own tribal thinking and political miscalculations. But if Irish nationalists really wish to persuade unionists into a united Ireland, then their growing tendency to rewrite the past seems an illogical one. A narrow nationalist majority in any border poll, if combined with an internationally isolated, nervous unionist community, whose own suffering has been either dismissed or celebrated, would make for a volatile transition. Many people in the Republic of Ireland instinctively understand that and are clearly worried by it. But they often tend to be the older folk who can still remember what it meant to hear a news report of a man shot dead in front of his mute and terrified children, a bomb explosion at a cenotaph, or a young mother murdered for collecting census forms. That was Jenny McCartney. Now, Dan Hitchens. Few institutions can match the global prestige of Oxford University. Just look at the gifts lavished on it, like offerings brought to some mighty emperor of the ancient world. There's the Said Business School, controversially funded with £50 million from Wafiq Said, who helped to broker the British-Saudi arms deal. There's the carbuncular Blavatnik School of Government, criticised by Russian dissidents for how the funder made his millions. There's the new student housing at St Peter's College, partly paid for with a donation whose original source was the mid-20th century fascist demagogue Oswald Mosley. Yes, people do sometimes ask whether there's any cash the university won't accept. And now they have an answer. The one thing you can't do with your money in Oxford 
is keep alive a small, struggling Catholic college. Try to do that, and every door will slam in your face. In May, Oxford's officials put on grave expressions and announced that St Bennet's Hall, an institution with about 130 students, which was described by the Students' Union as probably the friendliest place in Oxford, would be closing its doors. The reason, according to the university's statement, was the ongoing financial uncertainty. For the academics and administrators who lost their jobs, and for the wider community, it was a devastating blow. There was something unique about St Bennet's. It's quietly Christian identity and familial atmosphere. Unlike other colleges, there was no high table for fellows, but a single table where everyone sat together. Felt to many academics like the last link with old Oxford. The closure of the hall feels akin to losing a friend, the Tory MP Alexander Stafford, who went to St Bennet's, tells me. It nourished me, forming who I am as a person. It is hard to believe that the hall will no longer be there waiting for me. It was a truly wonderful place. But St Bennet's did not merely die off. It was killed. There was no financial uncertainty. St Bennet's had signed a letter of intent, a provisional deal, for a £40 million donation, enough to sort out its existing issues, grant the hall a solid endowment, introduce some scholarships for poorer students, and give everyone a pay rise. I have seen the document, signed by the potential donor, the American businessman John Barry, and the master of the hall, Professor Richard Cooper. Barry is the CEO of the $8.4 billion investment company Prospect Capital, and a prolific philanthropist who has funded elementary schools in New York, community organisations for low-income areas, cancer care for military veterans, and a scholarship programme at Oxford itself, the Barry Scholarship. St Bennett struck him as another worthy cause. Yet the university trod on the deal. The staff were sacked, students were hastily redistributed into other colleges, the buildings put up for sale. For Stafford, the situation is remarkable. The university should have permitted the hall to continue operating with its newly secured financial support, he says, and there needs to be a thorough and urgent examination of the reasons why this was not allowed to happen. Small wonder that in the dark corners of Oxford's pubs, people are muttering about the secularising trends in the university. For St Bennet's, though scarcely a Catholic madrasa, was officially linked to the Benedictine order. It was technically not a college, but a hall, a smaller type of institution with a Christian connection. Increasingly, the people who put themselves forward for Oxford's committees dislike traditional Oxford and religious halls, one former St Bennet's fellow tells me. These people tend to be more aggressively secular. Jonathan Price, a fellow of St Cross College and Pusey House, says the secularisation of Oxford goes hand in hand with centralisation and modernisation, the replacement of traditions with procedures. College chapels, the famous teaching system based on small tutorials, and the independence of the colleges could all yet come under threat. Roger Scruton, Price says, used to remark that the only reason Oxford has not yet been abolished is because no one has yet understood it. If they can understand it, they can dismantle it. Oxford does sometimes reject donations because it doesn't like the look of where they have come from. There is a whole committee devoted to reviewing donors. But John Barry, who offered the £40 million, was investigated by that committee when he made the offer. And according to multiple sources involved with the negotiations, he passed the committee's scrutiny unusually well, with flying colours, one said. It's clear that from the beginning, 
some people were trying to sabotage the Barry deal. I spoke to Robert George, a Princeton professor and well-known public intellectual in the States, who originally contacted Barry about the situation at St. Bennett's. The day this all began, George recalls, I said to my wife, I'm going to try to get this done with no Oxford intrigue. What an idiot I was. By the end, George says, with a nod to Oxford's association with detective stories, I just wanted to get through this without the discovery of a dead body. When St. Bennett's and Barry signed the deal, Professor George assumed that the whole thing was in the bag. A new board would replace the old one. George had put together some distinguished Oxford academics who agreed to serve. The university would give a thumbs up and the much needed funds would arrive. But when George arrived in Oxford in March, he found someone was spreading rumours about him. At a meeting with two senior officials, Gillian Aitken, the registrar, and Martin Williams, the pro-vice-chancellor for education, George was asked whether he was an employee of John Barry and thus potentially compromised. They were reassured, he says, when he explained that this was completely untrue. A few senior figures tried to help the deal. George singles out for praise Henry Woodhuizen, a hero of this story, then head of the committee which represents colleges to the university. Woodhuizen, George says, thought the Barry proposal was more than appropriate, something that would really benefit the university. But it dawned on George that there were also a lot of people in Oxford who would like to see St Bennett's fail. The demise of this cherished institution, at the heart of one of Britain's most successful brands, has naturally enough attracted attention from Parliament. Sir Edward Lee MP wrote to Oxford's Vice-Chancellor, Louise Richardson, asking for an explanation. She replied that the attempts to save St Bennett's failed thanks to financial sustainability, and also how donors sought to influence aspects of the student experience, nature and ethos of the hall. Implicitly, this seems to allege that Barry was seeking too much influence. That was, for some reason, a concern of the university. Robert George says that in his meeting with the officials involved in mediating the negotiations, they wanted to know, how do we ensure this board will stay independent? George told them that Barry was only involving himself with the hall's finances. He did not want to influence any governance issues and issues having to do with education, teaching and scholarship. Although Barry wanted to know the names of the future board members to whom he was handing over £40 million, the only one he had previously heard of was George. Barry, for his part, says, I was prepared to provide funding on terms that should have been acceptable to St Bennett's leadership and to the leadership of the university. These terms did not involve control by me or undue influence of any type. Three sources involved with the negotiations, including George, say that the university was so nervous about Barry's supposed influence that they refused to countenance the original board. So the master, Richard Cooper, put together a whole new proposed board to ensure there was no question of undue influence. The university registrar, Gillian Aitken, emailed Cooper to say, well done on all the hard work that I know such things entail. A few days later, at a university council meeting on 9th of May, even this proposal was rejected. Richard Cooper, according to multiple sources involved with the negotiations, was shocked. Cooper, Aitken and Williams all declined to be interviewed for this piece. Barry says, to this day, I have been given no reason for the rejection of my offer. When I put the claims in this article to the press office, I was first given a statement about an absence of adequate finance. After further pressing, a spokesman told me, 
the university did not feel that the offers provided sufficient assurance of the long-term sustainability and independence of the hall. But the university declined to explain why it thought the Barry offer was a threat to the hall's independence. Professor George, however, has hope that the truth will out. He expects to get the full story, he says, in a future episode of Inspector Morse. That was Dan Hitchens. Finally, Gus Carter. Warhammer is a tabletop battle game. Players build and paint little models of aliens, tanks and killer robots and then set their armies against one another on a miniature battlefield. It's a hobby that lights up all the obsessive bits of the male brain. Collecting, DIY, military uniforms, hierarchy and complex calculation all in the name of domination. There are Warhammer clubs across the country as well as 138 dedicated games workshops where players can battle one another. Enthusiasts have long been stigmatised as hygienically challenged young men with limited knowledge of the opposite sex. That's certainly how I remember my early teens when I was briefly into Warhammer. According to Rick Priestley, its inventor, his game is seen as something done in secret by young men. But perhaps its adherents are more varied than I'd suspected. It turns out that the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, is a fan. His private YouTube channel is dedicated to following expert miniatures painters. In 2012, he tweeted out a video on how to paint Astarath the Grim, High Chaplain of the Blood Angel Space Marine chapter. Tabletop wargames were first thought up in Prussia in the early 19th century as an alternative to chess for armchair generals. Different units were given numerical values to determine their attacking strengths and defensive weaknesses, while dice were used to determine probability of success during play. In the 1820s, the Prussian general staff was presented with Kriegspiel, designed using the latest information from the front line. By royal decree, copies of the game were bought for every regiment, and officers were ordered to play it regularly. Prussian success during the Napoleonic Wars has been attributed to their tradition of wargaming. A 2019 US Naval College study found that Prussian forces were more often than not outnumbered, weapon advantages were mixed, and training methods were similar. But wargaming appears to have provided a significant advantage. H.G. Wells became obsessed with wargames when his friend, Jerome K. Jerome, began firing a miniature cannon at tin soldiers after what must have been a particularly raucous dinner. Wells went on to develop his own larger version of Kriegspiel in his book Little Wars, a game for boys from 12 years of age to 150, and for that more intelligent sort of girl who likes boys' games and books, to give it its full title, detailing rules on logistics and the transportation of troops. His adherents included the actor Peter Cushing, who had an army of around 5,000 figurines and would spend up to nine hours running Wells' battle games. In the late 1970s, a small group of wargame obsessives in Nottingham managed to get the UK import rights for Dungeons & Dragons, a fantasy tabletop game. When the licence ran out, they needed an alternative source of income. Their miniatures company, Games Workshop, launched Warhammer in 1983, growing from a mail-order operation run out of a spare bedroom to a FTSE 250 company. Nottingham has now become a place of pilgrimage for nerds across the globe. Americans who want to visit the many toy foundries in the town, as well as Warhammer World, can spend $5,699 on a specially devised two-week tour. Perhaps they'll bump into the Foreign Secretary when they're there too. And that's everything for this week. But if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? 
I'm Oscar Edmondson, and please join us next week.